Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. It's great to be back with you. It's hard to believe it's uh, been four years, and uh, I was studying a few weeks ago and, and was just thinking and hadn't, hadn't, hadn't had many opportunities to teach lately, and I, I uh, asked God if he was interested in that, I'd be, I'd be interested. And the very next day, Matt called. And that was just, uh, that was just awesome. I have a little disclaimer here. Uh, if you hear me cough, um, it's not COVID. I have bronchoasthma. And um, so uh, just a little disclaimer. I found that to be very beneficial here of late, though. I haven't stood in any line in four months because a good asthma cough clears out the line in front of you at the, at the grocery store or whatever. Uh, but uh, Matt asked me if I would uh, uh, share some thoughts with you this evening um, about the tabernacle as you're uh, in the book of Exodus, which is uh, probably my very favorite book uh, in the Old Testament to study. And I want you to think about this concept from the beginning. God has a desire to communicate with us. That's incredible when you think about it. And beyond that, he has a desire to dwell with us. And I want to take you back some 3,500 years. There was a, a pretty famous original Testament guy by the name of Moses. He's 80 years old. He's on the backside of the desert, tending sheep, the flock of his uh, father-in-law, Jethro, priest of Midian, had to be pondering what he was going to do with the rest of his life. And as he's pondering this, and he's taking his sheep, trying to get them something to eat, he notices that there's this bush and this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. So that was, that was unusual, and he decided to check this out. So he goes over, and as he, as he nears this bush, he hears this voice to instruct him to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. Well, this burning bush was the Shekinah glory of God himself, a visible manifestation of the presence of God who spoke to, to Moses. And he's, he's going to challenge Moses, and he's going to commission him to go back to Egypt. He had spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt uh, with the benefit of growing up in Pharaoh's home. And then he visited some of his fellow Israelites, saw that one of them was being abused greatly by an Egyptian taskmaster. His anger took over, and he killed this taskmaster. Well, this news became uh, prevalent, and he became fearful for his life, and he hits the road to Midian. And he's out in the backside of the desert at Midian, right, which is near Mount Horeb, which is synonymous with Mount Sinai. And this is where God is going to speak to him. So he challenges him, he commissions him, he accepts the call reluctantly, but then he heads back to Egypt. And God is going to, to use him in a special way to lead the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt, uh, through the wilderness and to the land of promise. In fact, this is what he did, what Moses did in accomplishing this was compared by Dr. Luke in the book of Acts as comparable to what Jesus did, leading us out of the bondage of sin, and he's going to take us home. A terrific parallel there. Well, as he confronts Pharaoh, he gives him 10 audiovisual lessons, usually referred to as the 10 plagues, and finally, Pharaoh relents and lets the Israelites leave. As they crossed the Red Sea, uh, you can imagine what a day of rejoicing that was for them. They head out into the, into the wilderness. And God is going to lead them not directly to the land of promise in Israel, but he's going to take them on a southern route. 
And this southern route is going to take them to Mount Sinai. As they gather around Mount Sinai, uh, what happens is amazing. The mountain transforms before the people. There's this smoking furnace of a cloud. The Shekinah glory of God, once again, envelops the mountain. And there's thunder and there's lightning. The mountain trembles with an earthquake. And then the people, all of the people of Israel, heard God speak, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. They became so frightened about that, they didn't want to hear directly from God. They asked Moses to go up and be their mediator, their intermediary, if you will. And Moses accepts, accepts that call. He climbs, he ascends Mount Sinai, and he's going to speak with God, Yahweh himself, face to face, just like a friend speaks to a friend. And while he's up there, God's going to give him uh, uh, two bits of information, basically. One is the tabernacle and how to build that and implement the sacrificial system, and also the law code, the 613 laws of the Torah that the, the Israelites were given to follow uh, in, in their relationship with God. So <clears throat> as, as um, he listens to this very carefully, he's going to come down from the mountain, and he's going to be thinking through the blueprint that God gave him for the tabernacle, and he's going to uh, begin to construct that. And the purpose of the tabernacle was this, let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. That was the purpose of that. So the Shekinah glory of God is going to envelop this tabernacle in a special way, and we're going to talk about that when we get to the Ark of the Covenant. When you think about the tabernacle, the English word tabernacle comes from the Hebrew word mishkan, which actually means dwelling place. Shekinah that I've talked about is a visible manifestation of God's presence, the divine presence. It's interestingly enough derived from the same Hebrew word mishkan. So when you put this together, the tabernacle uh, is the dwelling place of the divine presence. All right. It's interesting because you're going to find that the tabernacle is a shadow, a reality, a historical reality, but the substance and the fulfillment of it we're going to see portrayed in what Christ has done for us. John, in his prologue to the Gospel of John, uh, says these words, says, the word, referring to Christ, became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of him begotten from the Father. When Matthew talked about uh, Christ coming and being born, he said they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us. And when Christ was born, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord shone all about him. So there's a direct connection when we study the tabernacle and we find out the fulfillment of many of the pictures in the tabernacle will be fulfilled by our Lord. So the place where Yahweh met man in the original Testament was the tabernacle then the place became the person of Christ. If you want to know God, then you've got to meet him at, at, at Christ. That's how, that's how you get to know God. So the divine presence will be uh, uh, in, encapsulated uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in Christ himself. Now, the tabernacle uh, was the center of the Israelite encampment. The, uh, you'll see this PowerPoint here, the, the tenting, was about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. And you'll notice that there were tents around. The Israelite, uh, Israelites encamped around the, the, uh, the tabernacle. 
the immediate people around the perimeter were at the eastern gate would be Moses and Aaron, and then the sons of Levi, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites were on each of the other compass directions, directly, uh, directly beside the tenting of the tabernacle. But then there are 12 tribes of Israel. There were three tribes encamped on each of the four sides, very organized. When you came to the eastern side, it's interesting because as you entered the tabernacle uh, uh, courtyard, there was only one way in. And what did Christ say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And on this side, right before the, ten, the, the entrance to the, uh, to the uh, uh, courtyard, the tribe of Judah was encamped. Judah means praise. And we're told by the psalmist to enter his gates with praise and thanksgiving. So I think it's very symbolic when you see the, the, the encampment and the, and the order there. The... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a picture of a, a model of the tabernacle that is located near Eilat in southern Israel. And it's out in the desert. It's a fascinating location. Uh, and it, uh, it gives you a, a kind of a perspective. I, uh, it, it wasn't quite 150 feet long, but it gave you a perspective as you entered into the, to the courtyard and to the tent of meeting. In the courtyard, in general, when you came in through the first door here, there were only two objects, the brazen altar for sacrifice and the brazen uh, laver for ceremonial cleansing. So there was the outer courtyard, which was accessible to everybody, anytime. You could, anybody could go there anytime. Then there was the tent of meeting. And this tending uh, was, uh, uh, the, the, there were animal hides across the top. For example, there were badger hides. There were goat hides. And the goat hides were dyed red, symbolic of, of, the, of the blood sacrifice that was needed. And then, so this is called the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting, when we uh, look at this, there you come in the entrance, the only way, the, al the, the altar of burnt offering, uh, uh, sacrifice, the brazen laver, then you would come into the tent of meeting. This, is, this would be the tent of meeting, and there are two places in there. There's the holy place, which was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, and it was separated uh, by a veil that separated it from the most holy place. So you had the holy place and the most holy place. In the holy place, there were three items. There was the golden lampstand or the golden menorah. There was the altar of incense and the table of showbread. There was only one piece of furniture, if you will, in the Holy of Holies, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. So our, uh, in our time tonight, I'm going to share some thoughts with you about each of these items. And we can only spend a brief amount of time on each one of them, but I hope that God's Spirit will pique your interest, because if you've never studied these, it's a fascinating study. And you could do a message easily on each of these, uh, but I'm going to try to give you a quick synopsis, synopsis to, to pique your interest there. <clears throat> The, uh, the, the positioning is very important. When you came in through the only, only opening, you would be confronted immediately with the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. And this brazen altar was seven and a half feet uh, uh, wide. It was seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet uh, tall. It had a, had a grate in it. And this was like, like a, a big barbecue grill, if you will. And the Levitical priests here would spend their time uh, sacrificing animals. It was not a glamorous job. You were, you were killing goats, you were killing lambs, 
you were uh, wringing the nets of, uh, necks of pigeons and doves. It was a gruesome job, all right? Uh, but when you, when you think about all of these sacrifices, and there were tens of thousands made, there were daily sacrifices, there were weekly sacrifices, there were monthly sacrifices, there were yearly sacrifices, there were sacrifices at, the, at special times uh, when the, um, uh, uh, like the festivals of Israel, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, special times of sacrifice. There were tens of thousands of, over the years of animals killed at this, at this location. And the um, when you, one concept that I want you to think about uh, is the, the God has decided that blood atonement is necessary to cover sin and to pay for pay for sin. That's been true from the beginning. When Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, what happened? God slayed an animal. He covered them with garments of skin. So God, in in fact gave history's first sacrifice. And in Leviticus 17 and 11, it says, for, <clears throat> for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And over in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no uh, uh, forgiveness of sins. So blood atonement is, is required from the first sin, and it's, it's, it's still required today. And, and so how do we get to that? There's an interesting principle here that I want that I want you to, to focus on. It said that the when when you came into the to offer a sacrifice, it was to make atonement for your sins. The word atonement is the Hebrew word kefar, which means to cover. Doesn't mean to take away. It means to cover. And I think that's an extremely important concept. So let's say uh, there, there, that you wanted to bring a lamb in for a sin offering. All right. You would bring, you would select your lamb, and make sure it was without blemish or defect. And you would take it into the to to the brazen altar. You would lay your hands on the lamb. You would pray and confess your sin over that. And as you're holding on to the lamb, the priest would sacrifice that lamb, would take its life. And what you're having to realize is that should have been me. That should have been me. But that animal is taking my place. It was substitutionary atonement. And that, by uh, when, you, when what Israel was doing, they were placing their faith in the provision of God. That's what he told them to do. But it didn't take away. It didn't take away sins. It covered them. And if it took away sins, then you wouldn't have to continually offer them uh, day after day, week after week, month after month. So there was something much more important uh, going on here when we think about this. And that's the shadow. The substance is Christ. When Christ went to the cross, he paid the debt for all sins. And it says in Hebrews 9 and in Hebrews 10, study those, those two chapters, has a lot to say about the tabernacle. But it says this, that Jesus uh, went to the cross. He died to, to pay the debt for our sin. And once he did that, it was a done deal. There was no need for any further sacrifices. Christ died once for all and paid the price, and he took away the penalty of sin. So when you think about this, we're all saved the same way. We're saved by placing our faith in the provision of Christ, uh, in, in, by the provision of Christ, by faith in his provision. In the Old Testament, they offered those sacrifices. They, they, they were covered, but when Christ went to the cross and one of his seven final sayings, he said, to tell us die, it is finished. That paid, that paid the debt. 
that paid the debt of all those sins. The Hebrews and the Israelites in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross and we're saved by the same way, by placing our faith in God's provision and the ultimate payment that is, has been made by Christ. So there's a question I think you need to ask yourself and I need to ask myself. I asked myself this in 1976. Uh, have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you laid hands upon the sacrifice? Have you realized that he died in your place and in my place and that he doesn't want you to have a life without him? He wants to dwell with you. And the first step that you have to make is blood atonement has to be applied. And it's his blood that was shed to make atonement for your sin and mine. And you do that by faith. And as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the first item is extremely important. The, the, the tabernacle symbolizes a, the developing a relationship with God. And the first step in developing a relationship with God is to realize that you're a sinner separated from him and that the only way to come to him is by faith in the blood of Christ and having that applied to your spiritual account. And he takes the penalty for, for you and for me. The next item that you'll come to, I'm sorry, I should, should have had this up there. I got ahead of me on my notes. So I already, already, already talked about this. Uh, Okay, sorry about that. The, after the altar of sacrifice, then you would come to the brazen laver. Now, uh, we get instructions on the, the brazen laver in Exodus 30, uh, and it was a ceremonial, a ceremonial cleansing pool. And you think about this, think about where did Israel, uh, uh, where did Moses get all of the materials to construct the tabernacle, all right? When they were leaving after 430 years of bondage in e Egypt, God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. And they stopped by Egyptian homes and they said, you like these golden lampstands? They're yours. You like these silver coins? They're yours. You like this, this cloth, these materials? It's yours. And it says that literally they plundered them with tons of precious metal and cloth and incense and things like that. Well, when it came time to build the tabernacle after uh, Moses got the instructions, he called for a free will offering. And the people gave of, of what they had plundered from the Egyptians. I kind of like to think in a small way, they got paid for 430 years of slavery as they, as they exited. And, but they, they were so generous and they gave so much that Moses had to say, that's enough. Now, I don't know how often that's a problem in church, you know, that, 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 that you have to say that's enough, but they, they gave abundantly. Well, one of the things that they gave them, uh, uh, the women gave them, uh, was um, their bronze mirrors, all right? This is an actual 3,500-year-old 3, bronze member, uh, mirror that was archaeologically discovered, all right? And this is the kind of mirror that they used. So the, the women who were ministering there gave their mirrors they melted that down and made this brazen laver, and then it would be filled with water. So uh, what would happen at the brazen laver is the priest, before he would enter into the tent of meeting to provide the, uh, ministry in the tent of meeting, he had to ceremonially cleanse himself, he had to wash his hands, his face, and make sure that he, he was cleansed. And when, you, and when you think about this, the, 
the, the, the positioning is extremely important. After we deal appropriately with the altar of sacrifice, and we, ex we accept God's provision and place our faith in Christ, we're declared not guilty. We're justified in his sight. All right? But I've never met anybody yet who, after their initial salvation experience, never sinned again. If you know anybody, I'd like to meet them, see how they did that. All right? they, I, I haven't met anybody that's done that. So what is the, the ceremonial cleansing as, as we enter into the tent of meeting to serve God? He wants us to, 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 to continue to keep our lives clean, to be sanctified, set apart for his service. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we need to be continually uh, aware of that. And so uh, you're justified, declared not guilty, and then you're sanctified as, you're, as you ceremonially cleanse. And the purpose is to enter into the service of God. Once you're saved, you're commissioned. You're commissioned. You're called into service. And we're all, we all have a different calling. And, uh, and, but it's important for each of us to seek God's face and find out what that calling is. And it might be teaching. It might be ministering. It might be working at a bread line, a soup kitchen, whatever. But there are no uncommissioned believers. God want, has called us into service, and he expects us to use the gifts that he gives us to, uh, to bring glory and honor to his name. I got to thinking about this with the mirror uh, and, the, and the, this being like a, a, reflective, a reflecting pool, if you will. The, um, uh, when the priest looked in there, he saw his reflection, but as he looked to the side, he would see, he could look up and see the heavens. And I think that's an important perspective. We need to see ourselves from God's perspective. And we need to cleanse ourselves. And how do we do that? We do that by being in his word, studying his word, and then asking God's spirit to lead us into the truth so we understand his word and then help us to be conformed to the image of his son. When we look into that pool, are we being conformed to the image of Christ? And that's, that's a, a very important consideration. So the... Um, the ceremonial cleansing became very important in Israel. This is a picture uh, at the, uh, uh, the Western Wall is, is over, over this way, and these Orthodox Jews have come to what I call the laver, and they ceremonially wash their hands, cleanse themselves before they approach the Western Wall, which is the closest place to the Holy of Holies there at the time of Christ. And uh, which one is the Orthodox here? The you know, the, the, uh, I, met, I, I met this gentleman, I, was, I, was, I could spend hours at the Western Wall just watching people. And that's literally what I was doing that day. And I watched this gentleman, he went over and washed his hands, and he was ready to approach the wall, and he sees me taking pictures, and he kind of nodded. And I asked him, I said, could I take a picture? And uh, he, he, he nodded his head. But interestingly enough, when, I, uh, when he came beside me, he pulls up his hands under his, his arm, and he wouldn't touch me with his hands because that would defile him, all right? He'd already been ceremonially cleansed, so he didn't want to be uh, 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 touching a, a goyim, a Gentile. I thought that was fascinating when I saw the picture. I didn't recognize it until I actually saw the picture. Uh, so 
the, uh, the labor is important, and ceremonial cleansing became very important throughout Israel's history. They developed mikvahs, which were mikvahs, which were ritual cleansing pools uh, that you would go into at the synagogue when you're at, if you're at the Temple Mount. Uh, there are mikvahs at the southern steps of the Temple Mount. They dug them up after 1967. Many people didn't think that there was any place there would be enough water uh, for uh, the Christians to be baptized 3,000 at a time. They found like 20 of those, and one of them could hold 30 or 40 people. So there's no doubt in my mind that the, the disciples baptized the early church in those ritual cleansing pools that were based on the, on the labor. Now, when you came into the holy place and looked to the left, you would see a golden menorah. And as you get closer to the Holy of Holies, the items become gold. You dealt with bronze, bronze altar, a brazen labor. Now you're getting into gold. The, the, the um, menorah was hammered out of a, sim, a single piece, and it had seven branches, three on each side and one center branch, and at the top it had a lamp that held uh, olive oil, and it was formed like, uh, like an almond cluster. The, the, uh, um, the menorah weighed 90 pounds, and in today's market, that's at least $2.5 million dollars. Right, two and a half million dollars. And what happens is when the priests would come in and light the, uh, they would fill the, the lamps with olive oil and then light, light the, the wick. The lamp, what did the light do? The light immediately reflected the menorah. And the, re, the menorah speaks to the deity of Christ it, and, and, and because of its, its gold, its gold. And the Holy Spirit is reflected in what the burning oil does. The Holy Spirit always illuminates the sun. He leads us into the truth of understanding God's word, but he always illuminates the sun. So <clears throat> there was only one light in the holy place. And when you think about it, there's one true light in the world. In John 1 to 6, John talked about um, John the Baptist. He said he was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So uh, John, uh, John the, uh, the Baptist was pointing to the, to, to the light. He wasn't the light. Jesus is the light. The first declaration of, of creation was let there be, be light. In uh, 1 John, John says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness. Uh, Jesus was teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. There were seven main days of that and he had had a profound teaching about living water. He said, if you want to take a drink of living water, uh, partake of, the, of my water and you'll never th th thirst again. Kind of what he, he told the woman at the well. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, interestingly enough, when they started that, they brought out four huge menorahs, and they put them in the courtyard, 75 feet tall, all right? And it was to, to uh, uh, remind Israel of their wilderness journey when they uh, uh, were being led by the pillar of fire, all right? Uh, the Shekinah glory of God. Well, uh, on the, 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 the lights of the menorah would burn into the eighth day, and I think when Christ was in, in John chapter 8, right after the Feast of Tabernacles, he had his disciples on the Temple Mount. These lights are fading. And what did he say? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I think it was perfect timing. When we, when we get on the other side, Matt and I were talking about this, I think we're going to be amazed at the perfect uh, timing that, that our Lord has. So uh, how do we apply that? When we're born again, we become light bearers. God's light resides, resides in us. His very presence indwells us. And what did Matthew say? He said, yeah, if you have a light, 
You don't put it under a bushel. No, you put it on a lampstand so that all may see. And he said, let your light shine before men so that people will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. So we're to be light bearers to be pointing people to the true light. And in the New Jerusalem, when you think about this, the, there's not going to be any need of uh, the sun or the moon because the Shekinah glory of God himself, Christ, will, will illuminate the, the city. If there was ever a time in my lifetime where the world needed true light, it's now. It's now. And when I think about all of the, all of the problems that we see, not only uh, in the United States but worldwide, uh, the, the, the only answer is a spiritual answer. The government's not going to be able to come up with an answer, I don't believe. And it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a spiritual answer. And when Christ himself was at Gethsemane and he prayed what's often referred to as the high priestly prayer, he prayed for his, his 12 that were with him that night. But if you're a follower of Christ, he prayed for you that night. It's an amazing prayer in John 17. So the, uh, just a, and as a side note, uh, when Zechariah was, was ministering in the holy place, he, was, he and his wife Elizabeth were uh, older, didn't have any children. The angel Gabriel appeared to, to him, but it's at the altar of incense. He's in there um, uh, um, at, near the, the golden lampstand. And I'm going to talk about the altar of incense in, in just a minute. But when you think about the, the, the opportunity that we have today in regards to sh- uh, sharing the light, one population expert that I've studied says this, half of the people who've ever lived are alive today. Now, if you believe in a biblical termina- uh, uh, in, in biblically dating the uh, age of the earth and the population, I think he's pretty accurate. But think about that. That means we have the greatest opportunity to share the light of any time in, in human history in, in this time of darkness. Now, um, the, this is the Arch of Titus, which was constructed after uh, uh, the General Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And on the inside of that uh, is sculpted some of the things that they took from the temple. And one of them is the menorah. So that's how we know what it looked like. And this is a, an actual picture of the menorah that's on display in the Jewish quarter. And it's ready to go. There's a, there's a, a group of Jews that have Temple 3 Institute. It's in the Jewish quarter. This te- they they want to use this in the next temple. And the prophets say there'll be another temple. This one's ready to go. And hopefully you'll, uh, you'll get to go there in the, in the year after next and, and see it yourself. It's an amazing sight. Now, on the other side... Um, to the right, you would see the table of showbread. And the table of showbread simply had 12 loaves of bread, and they were sprinkled with frankincense, and also had a golden pitcher of wine. It's kind of like an early communion table to me when I, when I, when I think about this. And the, the table of showbread was 36 inches uh, long, 18 inches wide, and 18 inches high. It was made out of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold, and it was, it was it's also referred to as the bread of the presence. Now, when you, when you think about this, when Israel departed Egypt, they needed to eat. And they were a little worried about that. But when they got up and went out of their tents and they looked on the ground, they saw this frost-like stuff. And, they, and you remember what they said? They said manna, which actually in Hebrew means what is it? So God gave them what is it to eat. All right. And they could take it and make it into cakes and different things. And they were to gather enough for each day. 
but on the, 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 the day before the Sabbath, they would get together twice as much, and then they have enough for the Sabbath so they didn't have to work. So when Jesus taught his disciples to, uh, the, uh, to pray, he said, give us this day, our daily bread. I think he was hearkening back to that, that provision of God um, uh, in the, in the uh, wilderness when they were uh, following uh, Moses' lead there, and God was making provision for them. So the, um, the manna stopped the day Israel ate from the produce of the land of promise. So he had given it to them for those, uh, those 40 years in, in the wilderness very faithfully. When Jesus was feeding the, the 5,000, all right, um, they, uh, he, had, he and the disciples had, were on this mountaintop, and they saw this huge group of people coming. And uh, he knew they needed to eat. And uh, Philip, he said, what, what do you think we'll give them to eat? And Philip said, you know, uh, uh, you, you know 25 days wages wouldn't even feed, give, them, give them enough uh, for a little bit. And, but Andrew said, wait a minute. He says, I found a little boy, and he's got five loaves of bread and two fishes. But what are these among so many? Well, you know what they were. Uh, Jesus took that bread, blessed it, prayed over it, and everybody ate. And at the end, what was left? There were 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. I think it was very symbolic. There were 12 loaves here at the table of showbread. There were 12 uh, uh, loaves there, one for each of the disciples. And God showed his amazing ability to provide for his people, to, to meet their needs. And the, um, Christ de declared one of his profound teachings in the book of John, in John 6. He said this, I am the bread of life. And he said, just like God sent bread from heaven to meet your needs. God himself came down in Christ incarnate, and he came to meet your needs. And, and I believe that uh, when, you, when you think about this, it, uh, in John 16, 33, says, in this life you will have trials and tribulations, but take heart, I, Christ, have overcome the world. And there's nothing that happens in our life that Christ can't meet the need and get us through. And, and in these days of trials and tribulations, which we all have, uh, it's, it's really good to remember that. Uh, the, uh, Paul wrote to the church of Colossae and said, uh, he, he created all things and all things were created for him. And by him, all things hold together. He wants to sustain us. And we have to, to place our faith in his uh, willingness to provide for us. Then when we come to the next item, the last item in the holy place was the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was an 18-inch square and 36 inches high. And the, the, the idea was the priest would come in, and uh, this is where Zechariah was. He was minister, the ministering priest, and the angel Gabriel is going to appear to him while he's, uh, while he's ministering at the altar of incense. At the, at the altar of incense, the priest would come in, and he would take incense, and, the, and the, once they brought the incense in, the, uh, that fire had to burn continuously. And the Jews believe that it burned continuously from Mount Sinai and was transferred into the, uh, to the first temple. And what does the psalmist say? David in Psalm 141.2 says that the, the incense that was being offered was symbolic of the prayers of believers. And John the Revelator confirmed that in, John Revel in, John, um, in Revelation 5.8. So 
when you think about that, there were, there were uh, bigger chunks of incense that the priest would put on there and then smaller dust-like uh, uh, particles that would be immediately consumed. And when you think about that, if the smoke is symbolic of the prayers of believers, there's nothing too big that God can't handle and nothing too small that he's not interested in. If it concerns you, he's created you, he's designed you, he knows you the best, and he wants you to, to, to place, place your faith in him. And the, um, uh, that, like I said, that, that smoke uh, was, was offered continuously, continuously. And that high priestly prayer that, 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 that Christ gave um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, that was, if you've never read that, read John 17, because like I said, he prayed, prayed for the 12, and he prayed for you and me if, if we're following him. Often in counseling, I, I challenge people to think about not only their, their body and their, their psyche, emotions and intellectual capabilities, but I challenge them to think about their spiritual lives. And uh, I, I've asked this question hundreds of times. Um, how's your prayer life? Rate your prayer life on a scale of one to 10. One being poor, 10 being perfect. Uh, and I've never had anybody rate themselves at a 10, all right? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could all pray more. And that prayer is one way to develop a closer walk with the Lord and to draw closer to Him. So, and finally, when we get into the, to the um, uh, we leave the, the holy place, and there's the veil, and the veil had three colors, blue representing uh, God's heavenly abode, uh, purple re representing royalty and red representing the way to access was through uh, 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 was through blood atonement. And in Hebrews 10:19, the writer says that we can enter through the veil, which is the body of Christ. So the high priest on one day a year, the day of atonement, would go past the veil and then he would enter in uh, uh, and make a, 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 an interesting sacrifice. So the body of Christ, when he sacrificed his body, we placed our faith in him and we have direct access to the holy place uh, uh, through his body, which is symbolized by the veil. And when you come into the, to the Holy of Holies, it was, this was uh, uh, popularized a few years ago by Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know how many times I've seen that, uh, quite a few times. But the, the Ark of the Covenant was actually the first piece of furniture constructed for the tabernacle. It was 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches deep. And uh, it was two pieces. It was a chest that contained three things. And then on top, it, there was what was usually called the mercy seat, more accurately, the atonement cover. And it was made out of acacia wood, which is basically an indestructible wood that's found in the Jordan Valley and in, the, in, in, in Sinai, representing the humanity of Christ. And then the gold that overlays it represents the deity of Christ, uh, being pure gold. And then you had two cherubim angels uh, on top facing one another. The um, Inside the ark were three things. Uh, the uh, tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, a golden jar of what is it, manna, and Aaron's rod that came back to life. And you remember there was a rebellion. Uh, Korah and the guys decided they were questioning Moses' and Aaron's leadership. They took one rod, one staff from each of the 12 tribes. Aaron's came from the tribe of Levi, and they put it in front of the tent of meeting, and it said the next day, whichever rod blossomed, that's who you follow. And Aaron's rod blossomed. So they kept that 
uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant with a golden jar of manna. And when you think about it, they had this covering over where the high priest is going to make uh, uh, atonement. And when, when you think about it, why, why were these in there? We've broken God's law, we've rejected his provision, and we've all rebelled against his authority. But he's made a way in spite of that through blood atonement. So the, the, um, the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would take off his royal robes with the, 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 the ephod, with the precious gemstones, and he would put on a seamless white robe. He would come into the altar of sacrifice and make a sacrifice of a bowl. And then, I'm going to give you a condensed version of this. After he, he slayed the bull, he would go into the, he would take uh, 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 incense, uh, um, coals from the altar, and he would take a bucket of bull's blood and the incense censer full of, full of incense, which would provide smoke, and he would go through the veil and, and stand before the Ark of the Covenant. And what he would do is he would take his finger, dip it in the blood of the bull, and apply it there on the what's called the mercy seat between the cherubim angel, thereby making atonement for the sins of Israel. But remember, atonement means what? It means to cover. It doesn't take away. Now think about this. What's the fulfillment of that? This is one of the most exciting pictures that I've ever studied. Mary uh, Magdalene, one of the last uh, women at the cross, was the first at the tomb. And when she came to the tomb and she looked into the, to the, uh, the tomb, what did she see? She saw the slab of stone where the Lord's body was laid. And she saw an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. And between them were the bloody garments of our Lord. And what was he saying? That's the final atonement. It's a done deal. The, there's no need for any further sacrifices. It's complete. Redemption is made, is, is made complete. In fact, Romans 3.25, John, 1 John 1, uh, 2, 2, and 1 John 4.10 says Christ is our propitiation. That's the English word, and in the Greek it means mercy seat. Mercy seat. So there's a direct connection, and that's the fully developed picture. So I've thrown a lot at you, uh, and uh, I hope it'll whet your appetites to get in there. But I'd like to leave this with you. Uh, in, I wanted to explain one last thing here. This is the, called the Ark, and it's the Western Wall uh, uh, in Jerusalem. And it contains the, the scrolls of the Torah. Each synagogue has an Ark that contains the, the Word of God, just like the, the Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments. So that's prominent throughout uh, the synagogues and, and Jewish worship even today. In the book of Revelation, John the Revelator, who was Jesus' best friend, said this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be no more mourning, nor cry, crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God has given us an excellent picture of his desire to dwell with each of us. And when you think about that, he, he led Israel, he provided for Israel, and he took them home. That's what he wants to do with each of us. He wants to lead us, he wants to guide and provide for us, 
and he wants to take us home. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, the Scripture says there's a time to do that. It says today's the day of salvation. I would beg you on behalf of Christ, lay hold of Christ. Place your faith in Him and confess your sins because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lay hold of Christ and, and ask Him to forgive you, to come into your life and make you a new person. And Christ had a simple command for us once we've accepted Him. He says, follow me. Follow me. If you're here today and you've already made that decision, that uh, the, the, uh, the Hebrew word for the Holy of Holies means to speak. To speak. All right? And what did Christ say? My sheep hear my voice. He wants to speak to you and to me, and he, he wants to lead us into truth. And if we'll follow his leading, he will challenge us, and he will sculpt us, and he will conform us to his image more and more as we rely on him. It's been a blessing to, to be with you, and I'll ask Matt to close. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.